you should try to generate cash flow or money from four different sources. You know, as an employee, as a self-employed person, business owner, as an investor, if you marry those two things, that's what I've been trying to do with my life. Caution. Listening to this podcast may motivate you to make positive changes in your life, identify ways to accelerate your career trajectory, and develop a path towards financial freedom. This is the Career Meets World podcast, and I'm your host, Edward Gorbis, and I've spent the last 10 years focused on helping thousands of people advance their career while in parallel teaching a secret recipe to reach financial independence. And I'm here to share the untold stories of successful people and teach thousands of listeners how to develop a growth mindset. Our minds are malleable, and everyone has the power to change their mindset through perseverance, dedication, and a passion for learning. So if you're ready to skyrocket your business and financial literacy, turn up the volume and let's dive right in. This is the Career Meets World podcast. I'm super excited for today's show as we have a financial wizard with us. Juan Mendez currently works at BlackRock, a global investment management corporation based in New York City. He's a vice president and a fixed income portfolio manager with a focus in U.S. investment grade corporate bonds. Before BlackRock, Juan was a portfolio manager at Morgan Stanley and a risk analyst at G Capital. He also received his Chartered Financial Analyst Certification, or CFA, and graduated from the University of Puerto Rico. In parallel, Juan also runs his own real estate business with a focus on long and short-term rentals in Florida, which we're going to learn more about today. And in his spare time, Juan loves to play tennis, ski, read business books, and is a huge whiskey fanatic. With such a diverse background in his personal and professional life, we have a great deal to discuss. Welcome to the show today, Juan. How's your day been? Not bad. Monday afternoon here in Kissimmee, no complaints. Sounds like you're living the good life. Thanks again, Juan, for joining us today to have this intensive, deep conversation about your background, what you're working on, your real estate business. Really appreciate it. I have been fortunate to know you for a very long time, probably almost 15 years now at this point. And you've become this incredible human being. You grew up in Puerto Rico. You most recently lived in New York and now have, through the pandemic, migrated down to Florida to continue working on your real estate business as well as all of your work through BlackRock. And again, it's exciting to have you on to talk about your experiences. And I want to make sure that our audience gets to know the real Juan Mendez and hear it from you. So can you tell us a little bit about how your background, how growing up in Puerto Rico shaped who you are today? Well, as you mentioned, I was born, raised, and educated in Puerto Rico. My father was a banker, and my mother was a commercial real estate agent. So since I was a little kid, I was deep into the finance world, the real estate, and I would say more importantly, business. So all of that shaped the way that I grew up. And surprisingly, when I went to college, I started studying computer engineering. 
because I love building computers. I love programming, trying to install as many operating systems as I could on my computer. So I decided to start with computer engineering. But one day I started day trading, actually in the middle of one of my internships. And I realized that I was making more money day trading options than on the internship. And that's when I said, you know what? There seems to be something here on this finance thing, this investments things. So why don't I switch my, mass, my, sorry, my degree from engineering to finance? And a few years later, here I am. So you quite literally started options trading and then chose to change your degree to finance. Not a move I'd recommend immediately. And the reason <laughs> no. for that, <laughs> I think the reason I, I'd say that is we got to go deeper. What, what inspired you to day trade options? How did you learn to do that? One day, back in Puerto Rico, I also, I became what is called A-plus certified which is a certification you can take by CompTIA, at least that's what it was back then. And with that, you became a computer technician. One day, I was fixing the network of one of my parents' best friends. And when I went there to their house, I noticed that they were trading stocks. And I saw on her account that she had over $100,000 in investments in stocks. And back then, for me, $20 was a lot of money. But when I saw 100000 I my mind was blown away. And I asked her, what is that? And she told me, oh, yeah, that she actively trades in the financial markets. And that's when I became interested in the financial markets, in stocks. And, of course, I barely had $1,000 back then. So you can either trade equities or you can really leverage your position and trade options. So I jumped into options trading. So for the average listener, can you explain the basics of options trading, what it is, and where the leverage play comes in? So when you buy equity in a, uh, stocks in a company, you're buying you know, one, two, three, a hundred stocks. An option, which is a, is a type of what's called a derivative, which means that it inherit, it is, you know, it takes its value from the underlying security. So in plain English, it means that when you buy an option, you have the option to buy a specific amount of equity of stocks at a specific price. So for example, if you want to buy Apple, you can play a couple of hundred dollars in Apple, or you can buy a contract that gives you exposure to 100 shares of Apple with far less money. So you basically, you cap your downside at the amount that you pay for that option, which is significantly less than for the equity. But your upside potential can be, in theory, unlimited. And that's what's called a call option, which allows you to participate on the upside of the stock and similarly, you can buy the opposite. Let's say you think that a company will fall in value. You can either short the stock, which can be complicated, or you can buy something called a put option, which pays you as the equity price goes down. And that's where we get the leverage part of it. So you started your 
transition and migration from computer engineering all the way into a finance degree, you made that switch, you learn more about the markets, you naturally networked with more people in that world. What was your first introduction after you graduated into the finance world? First of all, in the middle of my bachelor's degree in finance, somebody who was a very good friend of my parents told me about this thing called the CFA Charter, which is a Charter Financial Analyst Program, which is a series of tests, to be more specific, three tests that you can take. And if you pass them, you become a Charter Financial Analyst or a candidate. And after that, you need four years of studies. But that is a very challenging set of tests, if you want to put it that way, that gives you, at least in my experience, gives you a lot of knowledge into the investments world. So back in college, I started taking, pursuing this charter. And that's when I realized that I really wanted to do finance. So right after graduating from college, I had my first experience at GE Capital there in Connecticut, where I became part of their risk management program. What was that experience like? You just finished college, you're in the midst of getting your CFA and going through that process, which by no means is easy. It takes a lot of diligence and discipline to get through. But you started at GE Capital. What were you doing on day one? On day one, first of all, trying to figure out how the life in the U.S. is. On day two, trying to figure out the culture. On day three, learning how to use Excel. You have to realize, I went from Puerto Rico, from speaking Spanish 24-7, to the U.S., where I had barely practiced my English before that. And then I went into corporate America, where I had almost no experience, because all my internships were with the federal government. And it was nerve-wracking. I had no attention to detail. I, didn't, I barely knew how to use Excel. Uh, honestly, I was a train wreck at the beginning. But luckily, I love challenges, and I used that opportunity to learn as fast as I could from people who were amazing using Excel, PowerPoint, Word, etc. And it ended up being a very productive and a very, you know, very positive experience. Coming from Puerto Rico, which sure, it's a U.S. territory, but the native language still is Spanish and how you learn, how you operate, how you think is completely different from traditional corporate America, as you described. What do you think was the positive in coming from a different language, a different mindset? What did you take away from your culture? Somebody once told me that sometimes the most interesting thing of a person is their accent. So just the fact that I was, or that I am from Puerto Rico, is a great icebreaker. When you're meeting people, the first thing they will ask me is, where's that accent, Where, where's that accent from? And then I will tell them, oh, from Puerto Rico. Oh, that's amazing, I love Puerto Rico, I've been there on vacation. So that just breaks the ice so easily. So I would say that's actually an advantage, or at least it has been for me so far. As you know, Juan, I love Puerto Rico. It's a beautiful place. I agree with you that accents are incredible icebreakers. It just is a great place to start and talk about the individual, talk about culture, talk about common experiences. 
So I love that you leverage that and it's become part of your identity. And as we continue to think about who you are and what you've overcome and established for yourself in life, I want to kind of go back to G Capital and your experiences there and really uncover and tap into some of the difficulties that you went through, some of the challenges that you experienced as you got started there. Because as we've talked about this separately, there were so many smart individuals there. You had also mentioned that your attention to detail wasn't always there and being surrounded in this environment naturally can be challenging. So what did you go through? What did you experience? And what was that like for you personally? I would say exactly that. I was surrounded in NG Capital by so many smart people. Uh, to be honest, I sometimes like to have the fantasy that I'm a smart person. But the reality is when I see the people that I work with, I realize that people here are so smart. And the only thing that I think that has set me apart is that I like to work hard. And I actually, I love working. I love the finance, the investment world. And when you put your heart on it, you know, good things happen. So back then, as you mentioned, I started, I had to learn to have attention to detail. I had to learn to master Excel and after that programming. At the same time, all the learning that I was acquiring through the CFA charter program helped me set myself apart. And I would say it's it's a combination of working with very smart people, just being, just trying to absorb all that knowledge and working very, very hard that allowed me to grow in the industry. There's two phrases that come to mind and they're perfect for what you just described. One is when talent fails to work hard, hard work beats talent. And you're certainly (laughs) a reflection of that. The second one, which parlays into the next topic is really your reflection of the five people you spend the most amount of time with. And you clearly chose to surround yourself with incredibly smart people and as our listeners think about how do I become successful? How do I open myself up to new opportunities? You afforded yourself the opportunity to work at GE Capital through all of your own hard work, right? So as people are entering or thinking about transitioning into a new role, especially in today's climate, what would be some of your recommendations to who do you surround yourself with to what should I learn? How should I be approaching this time? For somebody who's starting in the industry, I would say always say yes to whatever somebody asks you because you don't have the luxury of saying no. You'll be surprised at the opportunities that I can open up when you say yes to some mundane tasks. At the same time that you're saying yes to everything that comes your way, you should be proactively seeking those opportunities that sound like amazing opportunities. Like you should be proactively seeking to do work for very senior people. You should be trying to participate or at least attend senior level meetings. So it's a combination of those two things. Proactively seek the very good jobs inside your role and at the same time say yes to all the opportunities that come by. For somebody entering the finance world, you're mentioning it's important to seek out opportunities. It's important to network with senior people, but sometimes that's intimidating. And 
how do you break your mindset to want to say yes or have an opportunity to say yes to something? We have to find those moments where we can actually approach some of those senior people. What was that like for you and what can somebody emulate today? What I've seen is that the people that do well early in their career are the ones that are willing to get the job done. Especially when you come as an intern and a first year analyst. In finance, what you know what senior people are looking is for hard working people that get results done. What people seek in a junior person is first of all that they are willing to put in the time, that, that they get their job done in time, and that it's perfect. If you can get the job done in time and they can see that you're working hard, learning, and you're being proactive. I think that's all you have to do early in your career. Opportunities will just start coming in naturally once people start to get to know you and they know your brand. Exactly. Sometimes we're like that duck sitting atop a lake, looking cool, calm, and collected. But underneath, we're paddling fast as hell to stay afloat. But nobody notices that part and nobody understands what that difficulty is to continuously develop that work ethic and make sure we're persistent and growing. And that's what I think about when I look at your career and how you were able to accomplish so much. You had laid the foundation at GE Capital. And from there, you were actually sought out by an extremely reputable company, BlackRock. They asked you to come and join their organization and I commend you for being one of those individuals that had built so many great relationships and built such an incredible personal brand by working hard. So I'm curious if you can uncover what does it feel like to have such a great company like BlackRock come and seek you out? To be honest, I was surprised. And there's actually a funny story in this. You know, after G Capital, I went to Morgan Stanley. That's another story that we can that we can delve into. But when I was actively looking for a new opportunity, because back when I was at Morgan Stanley, they sold the division that I was working in. That's actually another story, as I mentioned. I didn't know anything about fixed income. And just to give the, you know, the listeners some background, currently I work as a fixed income portfolio manager. But back at Morgan Stanley, I was working as a portfolio manager focused mostly on ETFs and equities. So my experience with fixed income was close to zero. So when I was interviewing, I remember they were asking me about what did I know about the Federal Reserve? What did I know about how fixed income, government bonds, corporate bonds worked? And my knowledge was actually quite minimal. But something that I did know is I was very good with systems, with technology, with programming. And I told them, I'm also an extremely fast learner. So they would ask me about those questions and I would tell them, to be honest, I don't know in detail. I would love to learn more about it. More about it. And I think, that, I think they liked that. The chemistry with the team was, you know, very, very good. And that's actually the, you know, one of the main reasons why I joined BlackRock, because I got along extremely well with the team. And I love the culture, the company. And since then, it has been a great decision. That's great. And fortuitous as well. 
You mentioned something that's very important and sometimes a little bit mystic to many people who are interested in the finance world is culture. And culture varies a lot throughout the finance industry. What is it like in BlackRock and what can you demystify for us about finance culture in general? Every company has a different culture. I've been lucky enough to be you know, to have been already at three companies, GE Capital, Morgan Stanley, and now BlackRock. And each one has a very different culture. At BlackRock, something that I've, you know, that I, that I recognize is that everybody tries to be the best in the industry at what they do. It's a culture of excellence. It's a culture that demands that you give your best every single day. But it's a culture that also rewards you because you are surrounded by so much talent and everybody there is very willing to teach you, to spend time with you so you can learn what you want to learn. And, you know, as our CEO says, you need to be a student of the markets. You need to be a student of technology. And every single person that I work with breathes that culture every day. That's such a beautiful reminder that we can all be a student for life and we need to be a student of the markets as we continue to think about how we want to invest and how we want to reach our own destination of financial freedom or independence. And if we zoom out of your career and think about your relationships with investing the markets as a whole, I'm curious if you could share a little bit about how you invest. Early on, you had mentioned that you started with options trading. What are you doing today? How are you thinking about how to diversify your own portfolio? First of all, I personally think I'm a terrible investor. And what I say about a terrible investor is not only that I am a terrible investor, but almost everybody is. So the rule in my life is if I'm not extremely good at it, just have a system that works for you. So I do that for real estate. I do that for everything. So my system for managing my personal finances is, is what I call or what is called a core satellite approach. A core in investment is just a market seeking strategy. In my case, I use a robo advisor, which basically is a system, a company that automatically puts your money to work based on your return objectives and your risk tolerance. They have models, very well-developed, very well-researched models that seek to generate market-like returns. So in my case, what I do, and we can, you know, we can go deep into this, is from every salary that I receive, I put X percentage of my money into that core portfolio automatically. So I get paid twice a month, and that money goes automatically to, to my core portfolio. And that generates market-like returns. Then on the other hand, I have the satellites, which are opportunities that I find in the market to generate additional return. That could be, for example, buying Amazon stock or Apple, Tesla, whatever you want to buy. Similarly to the equity investments in my satellite, I also invest in real estate. And I also consider real estate my, one of my satellites. So I have a core portfolio of market-like returns. And then I have different stocks that I use. I also have gold. I also believe in gold currently. And then real estate. And then that's how I manage my, my investments. 
I actually might have to borrow that strategy myself. It's a brilliant one and a good way to think about how to consistently invest on a monthly basis by setting a certain amount of allocation of funds towards the markets themselves. So without divulging too much about your personal finances, what would be your recommendation on how much one should start investing on their own on a monthly cadence? That's very simple. Just calculate how much you get paid, subtract your expenses, and then try to come up with the amount that you want to save. Let's say that that ends up being 20%. So 20% of your check goes automatically to your savings account, your robo-advisor, your whatever you want to put it. And the great thing about that system is that whatever is left on your checking account, you can do whatever you want with it because you're saving already automatically. So you're, you're already saving, let's say 20, 30, whatever you want to save. And then whatever is in your checking account can be used. And I think that's important because something that I see from people is either they spend too much or they don't spend enough. I've seen both extremes. And I think the primary reason is either they don't have the discipline or they don't know how much they can invest or how much they can expend. So maybe that's an exercise that can take a few minutes to to come up with that number. And then trust me, it's great to know that it's a Friday night and there is money in your checking account. And you know you can spend it as much as however you want, guilt-free, because you already saved. Exactly. It's important to figure out what your appetite is for investing, for savings, the importance of knowing what your expenses are and figuring out that simple math equation. The beauty is there are many tools on the market for robo-advising. I know you personally use Betterment. There's also ones like Wealthfront, Stash, Acorns. There's a parade of different ones. What actually made you choose Betterment and trust in their platform? I started doing that a while ago when Betterment was just starting and there were not that many competitors out there. And they just had their theory lineup. They had a very easy system and it's a system that continues to evolve. I keep receiving their emails. I love them. They keep evolving their system. And I just like that. You know, they have a nice system. I like their investments and it's so seamless that I have to pay no attention to it. And I love that. If I don't have to pay attention and I trust it, that's the sweet spot. And that's the beauty of Throbo investing. You set your strategy and you create your system, as you mentioned, and you let it flow. And it clearly has proven to be a great system for you because as we've talked about offline, and I want to introduce now to our listeners, you've taken a lot of those earnings and created a new strategy for yourself. And one that many people want to, or many people aspire to accomplish, but few know how to truly get there, which is build your own and personal real estate portfolio. And you started doing that early on after you saw success with robo-advising. Walk us through that. How did you make those decisions and what were some of the things you learned along the way? So I got into real estate investing by, by mistake. The very short story is I wanted to move my parents from Puerto Rico to Florida. And I told them, you know, I've saved some money. If I buy you a property, would you be willing to move? 
And they told me, absolutely, why not? So I started reading books because I didn't know how to deal with taxes. If I bought a property in Florida that my parents lived in, like, you know, if they pay me rent, what do I do with that money? So anyway, I found a property, I bought it, and I told my parents, hey, the house is ready for you. When are you moving? And they told me, well, you know, I don't think we're ready to move to, to Florida yet. I'm like, are you kidding me? I just bought you a house. What am I supposed to do with a house in Florida when I'm in New York? And that's when I started reading about property management, et cetera. And I put the house in the market. And immediately, I was able to find a tenant. And I started cash flowing. I started making money out of it. And I realized, you know what? That's actually not bad. Now, every month, I have a little bit more money. So I save a little bit more money. And then I bought a second house. I told them, hey, you want to move? They didn't move. And I was actually very happy they didn't. So I also put on the market. I rented. Finally, when I bought the third house, that's when they finally decided to move to Florida. That's that's really funny. It's interesting. A lot of people think there's this perfect plan set in motion where you create your real estate strategy, buy homes, you start putting it on the market through a property manager and poof comes cash flow. But instead, it sounds like it all happened by mistake. And again, it was all fortuitous and you learned through that process. How many homes do you own now? Currently seven. So you went from one accidental home to seven homes. You're starting to build a true portfolio management strategy with real estate. What is that like? What is the process? What is the upkeep? What should somebody learn about that process? The first thing is, it doesn't matter how many books on real estate you read. Once you do your first deal, that's when you realize how much you're learning. Before I bought the first property, I remember I read six books on real estate. And when I was going through the process of finding the property, getting somebody to inspect the house, getting the mortgage, dealing with the insurance, with a, you know, with a, with a title company, et cetera, I realized I didn't know anything. So every single day through the process, I was learning. So if real estate is something you want to do, probably the best way is to just find a nice property inside your budget in an area that you know and go for it. You know, best thing, you start a business. Worst thing, you have an asset. It could be a liability at the beginning, but you should be able to find a tenant. And, you know, you, you learn a lot through the whole process. And there's definitely a lot to learn about real estate. The number one thing that most people learn is location matters first. Mm -hmm. And you chose to buy a home for your parents initially, at least in Florida. Was there a specific rhyme or reason to why you chose Florida or is that a market that you had done extensive research on and chose this to be the greatest investment? So my sister at the time was living, actually, she still lives in, in Florida. To be more specific, she lives in central Florida in a city called Lakeland. So when I bought my first property, I bought it in Lakeland. I didn't know the area that well. It sits right between Tampa and Orlando. So my thought process is, I know somebody that lives there, somebody who's family. It's in the middle of two great cities. So what can go wrong? 
And yeah, so far the the property there has done very well. You made the decisions to buy homes in Florida. You've bought seven of them now, and you've learned a tremendous amount. There's a lot to be said about learning on the job through practical learning. What are the key insights that you can take away from your experiences over the last few years owning real estate down in Florida? I see it as my as my MBA. And I have a bachelor's degree. I got the CFA charter. But I never pursued a master's or an MBA degree because instead of spending, let's say, a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars pursuing that degree, I find personally more value into using that money to either build businesses or try new things that can be rewarding, either from a money standpoint or from a learning standpoint. And in that sense, building you know, my, my real estate business is my own MBA program. You started early on thinking you wanted to enter into computer engineering. You quickly learn through simple options trading that it's time for you to twist your career and move into the finance world. You've done an incredible job growing through BlackRock. You're now a VP there. You've built a successful real estate business down in Florida. How do you balance your time? It seems like a lot to take on, but I find it incredibly inspiring that you're able to manage both. What's the secret sauce to your success? You may have noticed that if you've ever read a book by, by Tim Ferriss, you know, he's a very famous author of the four hour work week, tools of Titans, tribes of mentor, you know, everything that that guy has written, I find it amazing. And one thing that he, one point that he makes is that of building systems and having systems work for you. At the same time, if you marry his thought process with Robert Kiyosaki, he's another very famous author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, who makes the argument in one of his books called The Four Quadrants, which the 10 second summary is that you should try to generate cash flow or money from four different sources. You know, as an employee, as a self-employed person, business owner, as an investor, if you marry those two things, that's what I've been trying to do with my life. To answer your question, you know, I built systems to work for me. In the real estate business, I'm completely paperless. Everything is automatic. Uh, I just use different systems. I keep track of every single question I get asked on my short-term rentals. And I already have a response for everything. So it's just either copy and paste or there's something that already provides that answer. So you'll be surprised that I actually barely spend any time on my real estate business. And then for my, for my day job at BlackRock, it's the same thing. I've learned to program in Python, BBA, et cetera. Uh, which is something that I will highly recommend somebody in finance. And then I just try to automate as much as possible from my day job. So what I realize is that I actually have a lot of free time during the day, during the weekend and everything. Thanks to just building those systems, automating and having, you know, your, your projects work for you. That's powerful. You've automated a lot of your life and you've taken the time to learn how to do that as well and created these 
useful systems that help you manage your business, help you manage your professional career as well. Do you ever find it tiring? What's kind of the most daunting part of doing all that? Probably the trial and error. When especially, you know, a great example is in the short term business. I do, you know, I have two houses that I use for Airbnb. And when you get asked a new question or when something happens that is not in the system or you haven't programmed it, then it becomes a trial and error. Because the mentality should always be, if X happened, Y is the response. And the response has to work. And if it doesn't work, that means there's something broken in your system and you have to fix it. That's probably the most daunting, but also the most exciting part of it. So for many of our listeners who are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, all are welcome, but the, the majority of our listeners are early in their career and they're just starting to build some of these systems. You've taken the time to learn. There's a lot of trial and error throughout your life. What would be some of your recommendations to people just starting out early on and thinking through what are the systems I should build for myself? First of all, we are already in the 21st century. There are computers, there are systems for everything. So whatever you're trying to do, there's a really good chance that somebody already did it. Similarly, if you create something, there's a really good chance that somebody already did it and way better than you. So sometimes as simple as how can I automate my Airbnb business? How can I automate my lead generation for my long-term rentals? Or how can I automate X? Google already has everything. Somebody has built something for everything. So sometimes you just have to be willing to maybe spend a few dollars a month using a system that already exists. Or you can take the time to build that for you. I really like that you decided to simplify your life by implementing systems that made things easier for you on a day-to-day and automated a lot of those things that you might not want to do, but you realize it's an important thing to invest in and that you were able to make things easier for yourself. So I commend you for doing that. The other thing I do want to ask you is that obviously there are so many people that continuously help us grow and evolve. And we learn so much from individuals and like many of us, we have different people that we confide in that we go to, to learn and understand the world. And for you, I know you've had a lot of different mentors support you. So I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about who they are and how they've been able to help you. As you mentioned early on, and I totally believe with you what you said, that you are the average of the five people you spend more time with. I would say that I've been fortunate enough that I've had mentors not only in the finance business, not only in the programming aspect, also mentors in public speaking classes that I've taken, which I think are super important. Even I've had mentors for dating. Uh, just to learn how to date, etc. I also ha- have a fantastic mentor who is, who's, you know, probably one of my best friends, my f- best friend. So I've just had different mentors for different aspects in my life. And because they're so good at what they do, I just try to, to listen. As I, as I heard once, you know, you have two ears, one mouth, you sit in that proportion. And that's exactly what I've done with, you know, all these mentors that I've been able to meet in my life. Exactly. To extend that, I've heard since we only have 
one mouth and two ears. We should listen more than we talk. And it sounds like you've done an incredible job throughout your life learning from other people. And learning is the one tool that we have in our life that can't be taken away from us. We actively can choose what we learn, how we learn. What are you doing today to learn? What books are you reading? How do you ingest new information? So currently, and you'll be surprised that now I'm actually reading this book. I'm reading The E-Myth Revisited. I don't know if, if, you, re if you read that book. What is The E-Myth Revisit? It's, it's called The Entrepreneurial Myth. And it's this book that shows you how to create a small business. And actually, a lot of the things that we've discussed here, things that I learned throughout my life, this book already had all that information. I could have probably saved so much time if I had read this book many years ago, because the book has been out there for a while. But the book talks about how, what's the difference between having your own business and having a job? Because if you have your own business, or that's what you think, but suddenly you were to not work on your business, would the business still work? If it doesn't, it means that you don't have a business. It means that you have a job. So that's actually the same mentality that I apply for my real estate business. I'm trying to build something that if I were to stop doing everything, it will keep working the same way as if I was there. That makes so much sense. It's almost like building a machine that once in a while you certainly need to maintain, but more often than not, it's able to operate on its own. All the kind of parts are greased, the engine is lubricated, things are working well, and you've been able to do that successfully. Obviously, it's not easy and it takes time, but you still have this consistent curiosity and this thirst for learning. I'm curious, where does that innate drive come from to want to learn and want to better yourself? First of all, actually, you mentioned that I become a machine. That can actually be the biggest weakness of somebody. And maybe we can take this a little, you know, a slight deviation from the question. Something that I find, you know, probably one of the biggest mistakes that I've done and one of the biggest lessons is that regardless the fact that we work, we work, we live in a world that is so automated, there are so many systems, computers, et cetera. The main difference between an employee and a senior executive or a manager is the people skills. You know, the difference between a base pay and that massive multi-million dollar bonus package, et cetera, it's sometimes that ability to lead, that ability to communicate with people. So even though I spend so much energy, so much time building systems, et cetera, at the same time, something that I'm working towards is spending less time on that quantitative aspect and start spending more time in the qualitative aspect and developing my EQ rather than my IQ. I love that, this idea that it's always important to develop our EQ, but I'm curious, how does one go through that process of enhancing one's EQ? Back in the days when we were going to bars and restaurants, seems so far away, right? Uh, back then, obviously, the best way was, you know, going to parties, 
forcing myself to leave the apartment and go out and socialize. These days, I find myself, not only by the fact that I'm working from home, I don't know if everybody has this experience where you're actually spending more time working than when I was in the office, but I'm making a conscious effort to participate or to attend more meetings. I've always been against meetings. I always try. I just like to do my stuff, automate my stuff and get out. But now that we are in this situation where we're working from home, we're not spending that much time with people. I'm starting to find the true value in having meetings and, you know, in showing my face out there. Because something that I see a lot of people do when they are in this Zoom video conferences, WebEx, et cetera, is that they turn off their camera so you never see them. There are so many people I haven't seen since March that attend every single day meetings. But just showing your face actually, I think, helps you make sure that people still recognize you. They can still see you. They know you are there. So I think that's actually very powerful. You bring up some incredibly important points. And as a lot of people are trying to rebrand themselves right now and still continue to be incredibly impactful and respected at work, as we jump on more video conferencing calls with our peers, our clients, our managers, we need to remember that how we communicate is a big part of how people perceive us, how we are identified in the world. So continue to work on that. I think, Juan, you've done an incredible job of pushing this light out into the world and reminding people that it's important to continuously jump on the video call because part of communication is not just what we're saying it, but obviously how we're saying it and our body language is so important in conveying our emotion, our passion for whatever the topic might be. It'll take us a lot further in our career, especially during this time that is being completely redefined. So I love that you keep learning. I love that you always have this drive to better yourself. And I think our audience can certainly take that away as they have listened to your story and your background. And as we are nearing a close, I do wanna make sure that our audience is able to stay in touch with you and is able to connect with you because there's so much that you're able to provide for the world and you have a beautiful story. So what's the best way to reach out to you? Probably through LinkedIn. It's actually the only social media I'm active on. So we're entering my favorite part of the show. It's the hot seat where we get to ask you a couple of very fast questions and learn your answers on the fly. Are you ready for yeah. it? I'm ready. If you think about the most successful people you've met throughout your career, what are the three characteristics that they have? They embrace technology they embrace learning, and they are great communicators. Love it. Perfect answer. It's succinct. <laughs> You're doing incredibly well. You're a VP at BlackRock. You're building a successful real estate business. What's your target retirement age? Never and now. Never and now. Interesting. Yeah. And lastly, 
What's your favorite Puerto Rican food? I would say probably mofongo. Uh, I love a good mofongo. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us, Juan. We'll share all the resources, tips, and tricks that you provided with us in the link below. Thank you again and enjoy. Thank you, Eddie. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the Career Meets World podcast. I would love to get to meet you. There are a couple of ways we can connect. You know I love my LinkedIn. Simply search for Career Meets World or Edward Gorbis and feel free to connect. Second is via Instagram at Career Meets World. And third is through our website. I have a special spot for you full of fun, free resources. All you have to do is go to careermeetsworld.com, subscribe to our newsletter, and we'll provide you the free resources to help you boost your career and reach financial freedom. And if this podcast was helpful to you in any way, please consider rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts. This helps us help more people. Simply tap the rate with five stars and leave a sentence with what you liked about the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. Remember, strengthening your growth mindset is your ticket to success. I'm Edward Gorbis, and we'll catch you on next week's episode.